welcome to Disability, Movement, Etc., a podcast that unapologetically publishes on Cryptime. I am Dr. Andrew Colombo D'Agavito. I am John Lepke, acronyms unimportant. And on today's episode, John and I are going to be talking about exercise for mental health. It's a big topic, and certainly we're probably going to ramble for most of this episode on that. John has a wonderful interview today with Lisa Cox. John, you want to say anything for Lizzie the Cox? Lizzie Cox. Do you want to say anything for the viewers? Uh, get them interested. That way, I stay listening. Yeah. So Lizzie is a disabled activist, content creator, talking about fashion and fat phobia and chronic illness and disability. And so excited for listeners to hear what Lizzie has to say. Yeah, I'm excited too. It's a huge intersection. I think the areas between. Obesity, disability, kind of how we talk about fatness and health and wellness and well-being and all the other buzzwords that we tend to throw around interchangeably. And I think maybe that'll do good for setting us up into just jumping right into talking about it today. So uh, I kind of brought this up to you and I, I'll throw it to you to hear your thoughts. But just as a little preamble, uh, you know, as somebody with depression, and somebody who works in the field of kinesiology and movement and all the things that we often hear inevitably exercise is good for mental health. And the evidence bores that out, right? I mean, there's, there's numbers of studies that suggest regularly, habitually engaging in exercise often helps with depression and helps with anxiety. And it can help get people with PTSD unstuck or out of a rut and so on and so forth, in addition to being good for just our physical well-being. And you brought this up, John, that that viewpoint, the lens that we often push that forward to like just go for a run, even though, yes, it's beneficial, we feel good. Yeah. Have you tried yoga? Has it fixed you yet, Andy? It's, yeah, it's, a, it's tied to that cure narrative. So, I mean, it's, it's a very, what are all the idioms we can throw out? It's a delicate balance for walking on a knife's edge, right? You know, this time of year particularly is, I don't know the exact statistics, but it's this winter months are always the ones that are worse for our mental health. The days are short. <laughs> We're stuck inside usually, you know, unless you live in a place like you do, John, in the wonderful white Canadian North, you're, you don't really get used to doing stuff outside in the cold. Or you like if you're in Texas, you don't have the infrastructure to do things in the cold. And I think no matter who we are, moving our body is good. And I don't think it has to be going to a fitness center. In fact, I get in trouble when I push back on my colleagues for thinking that sometimes that we don't have to do exercise in certain ways or the, we don't have to do exercise in a... It doesn't have to look a certain way. Right. Physical activity, movement, moving our body can be as simple as exploring your own neighborhood or, um, you know, finding ways in your house with the spaces you have to move. I mean, put on music and start a dance party. To me, that's exercise and physical activity. You know, like I think too often, and maybe this goes hand in hand, and I'll, I'll turn it over in a second with that cure narrative, but that it has to be very prescriptive and we have to do it in physical uh, fitness centers, which again, barriers, all the things, right? And so how, 
how do we navigate that? How do we navigate saying this is good for our mental health, yet we don't want to keep pushing or inadvertently pushing that that cure that we're doing exercise because it's going to cure our depression or anxiety or whatever. Yeah. Uh, well, for me, you know, thinking this over when you brought this up as we were prepping for the podcast, to me, it's two semi-separate but connected uh, conversations. Because I think able-bodied, and I'm, I'm making that distinction for a reason, I think ab- versus non-disabled, I think able-bodied people often have a perception of what movement means, which is antithetical in a lot of ways to uh, many people with physical disabilities. Um, so I think there is that like disability community versus non-disabled and or sometimes able-bodied folks around like the capacity for movement. Um, you know, long COVID is an example talking about post-exertion malaise and stuff like that, and that not being known because ME-CFS hasn't been talked about as much as certainly people who have ME-CFS would like it to be. Um, bad. We've talked on the podcast before about folks with Ellers downloads not being involved in Paralympic sport uh, from a, from an elite level, not being able to compete. Of course, recreationally, in, in some centers, there will be folks. Uh, the you know the radical disconnect that the medical community understands about that. So we have that sort of hornet's nest. But then I think we have the hornet's nest within even physical disability community between the folks who played bear sport and those those who didn't. Uh, and part of that I think is that uh, at least in Canada, um, and I don't play anymore. As I told somebody the other day, I put retired the word retired and retired athlete. But the there, there isn't as much of a robust recreational structure. There is a rush to, oh, we'd love to put you on this elite team, or maybe you can shoot for that, which creates a challenge. And, and I think some of the sports have done a better job than others about talking about physical activity. Like bocce does, bocce athletes could certainly disagree with me, and I would take their point and, and defer to them. But you know, sports like bocce, power soccer, uh, power soccer, football, depending on you know where you are in the world. These sports have had a much longer conversation, I think, about what activity looks like. Activity doesn't need to be wheelchair basketball, wheelchair rugby, tennis, like these super crip sports, um, and slide hockey. Like I think that we sometimes in pair sport we accidentally or intentionally sometimes connect it to cure narrative rather than recreation and movement and sometimes in disability in that spaces i'll be honest this might ruffle some feathers but i find it incredibly difficult to talk about activity i'm horrendously inactive by the way um but i struggle to talk about activity in some spaces because it turns into what's well, nice that you can do that and and my point is just because i feel some kind of positive reaction when I go to the gym and lift heavy weight or um, be a completely pin in the ass super crip. There used to be, I it, when I went to, when I was an undergrad, I used to go to the gym and purposefully I'd go with somebody and tell them to scream behind me because what I would do is every time somebody was being egotistical, I would make a big show of transferring out of my chair to the leg press machine and then spasm pressing the whole stack and going like, well, the cripple can do it. I don't think it's that impressive. <laughs> Um, 
I was different at 18 than I am at 29. Shock, surprise in the way that I act in those spaces, thank God. If anybody's the same person that they are today when they were 18, I don't know what you've been doing. But yeah, I think honestly, again, not not a community that I am, you know, integrally a part of. We talked earlier, we've talked in a previous podcast about the lateral ableism that can exist between lateral and internalized ableism that can exist between Paralympic and, and Special O. Special O has this figured out that recreation doesn't have to be the elite of the elite of the elite. It's building community. It's making connections and activity is part of that. Um, and I, I think we're too prescriptive about like, oh, I disabled person, I can do this. So that should be the best model for everybody, right? Physical movement happens to make my brain happy. That's great. If it didn't, I wouldn't do it. I'd, I think we're dangerous when we, not saying you're doing this, but as a community, we tend to prescribe it, right? Of like, it worked great for me and therefore it worked great. And then you have the medical system yelling at you going, oh, you'll fix the depression if you go to the gym or you know, every every medical issue you've ever had is a weight problem, and that's tied to obesity rather than looking at particularly folks with disabilities that whether medication-induced. There's a million reasons why not every disabled person is, is the medical system's version of healthy. So, and the cure narrative is just so exhausting because I'm still depressed when I like my depression is and my anxiety and my panic disorder are dynamic disabilities. They they're still going to exist. I might not feel it for that seven minutes, or I might feel good for a day, or I might be like, "Hey, I'm back on the I'm back on the gym grind, woohoo!" Right? But uh, yeah, if you went in my Amazon history, it's me. Like, can I use a rowing machine? I've never used one, but I could fit one in my basement. <clears throat> uh, yeah. That's going to be a Pixar. It didn't happen adventure, I think. But like, there needs to be this understanding, and it needs to start from the top rather than the people who are like. This isn't a mindset shift that I'm prescribing to the people who say, "Well, I can't go to the gym. I'm I'm disabled." It's a systemic thing that says. I mean, um, I saw in the last like eight months, Mary Kate Callahan, who, uh. Her resume is very long, but disabled triathlete, played wheelchair basketball for a long time, uh, swimmer, four billion other sports, I'm sure. On the off chance that Mary Kate's listening to this, apologies for not knowing your CV off the top of my head, um, was posting about like first, first uh, hand cycle in a local um, like spin class. Like, of course, people don't see themselves in these spaces because they don't. In order to be in an athletic space as a disabled person, particularly a physically disabled person, a little bit different if not, you have to go into these hyper-able disabled spaces most of the time because you can't just go down the gym. Either the equipment isn't there, like there's no – and even if you do, I mean, you're an adaptive wreck. Like, would I want to go to the gym if every time I had to go, I had to have four billion conversations about how I was going to use the equipment and teach somebody how to transfer me and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da? No, I'd never be in a gym. I'm not anyway. In the span of like five minutes, you brought up so many things for me. Um, and I was trying to take some. I was trying to take some notes because, as as we've both acknowledged many times in this podcast, we are both 
heavily neurodivergent. And if listeners haven't figured that out yet by trying to follow along with our rabbit holes of conversation yet, well, welcome to the show. But part you brought up to me that I think is at the forefront is just how convoluted a simple argument like go for a run can be. Looking at the evidence, yes, scientifically going for a run or doing some physical activity that increases your heart rate is going to have some clinically relevant impact on you. Clinical relevance and practical experience are not the same thing. And I think it's really important for those who work in this field to understand those aspects that when we do clinical work and we find clinical significance, or we work in a hospital setting, or we work in a PT setting, clinical relevance, yes, is important. It's important for people to make those incremental gains that we can observably measure. If somebody practically is not feeling a difference, or if they do not feel an improvement, they're going to be less likely to do it. And for disabled people, um, whether they are able-bodied or not, because I think that's another important distinction we're going to have to circle back to, that you can be disabled and still able-bodied. I myself, I believe I'm an example of that. I, of course, have depression, anxiety, uh, ADHD, but physically, my body is more or less able-bodied, right? I mean, I've got plenty of injuries. I've got... Aside from some rugby injuries, yes. Yeah, bad knees, bad hips, a bad back. But they generally function most of the time in a way that society can accommodate for. Yet, physical disabilities particularly, right? Because they're sort of the ones that stand out the most. Uh, most gymnasiums are not going to have the equipment that is needed to do certain activities. Or like you said, John, yeah, you're going to have to have a million conversations or you're going to have to make sure you're with somebody who can help you transfer in and out of a chair if that's not something that is good for you or easy for you to do. Or Yeah, or you're going to have to go to some uh, some very disabled medicalized space. And I'm, I'm not I'm not sitting on a, you know, every rehab hospital ever because there's, you know. There, there's lots of good people in those spaces doing really good work that is outside sure. of the usual medical paradigm. But yeah. Yeah. I think the the other piece is that habitual aspect of it, right? And yes, one bout of exercise shows clinical importance, but the real benefit with exercise, with moving our body is the habitual aspect of it. And it's, I think kinesiologists whatever, wherever we're working at in the field, do a real disservice to people when we don't acknowledge that to get real benefits from this takes concerted effort. It takes a lot of executive function to make sure that you exercise a certain amount in a particular day, particularly if you can't just, you know, go out your front door to do some kind of exercise, or if you don't have the affluence to be able to purchase all the equipment you need at home. And I mean, the pandemic certainly was a boon for the home fitness industry world, but I've seen countless articles in the last few weeks and months that show people are like trying to sell all that shit because they're not using it again. 
Because now we're back into this world of, well, I'm not at home all the time. So my routine of being able to do a home workout doesn't work as well because I have to get ready to go out and whatever, whatever, whatever. Or some people just miss the communal aspect of a gym, right? Being able to go, even if you're not working out with somebody, but see other people around there and get that social interaction. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, it's, it's such a layered onion in delving into this. And it, I think you're right. It's going to take a shift in try in, in what is activity. And you brought up Special Olympics, which I, I have a conflicted relationship with Special Olympics. And as I'm sure many people do, but I absolutely adore the Special Olympics for what they are and what they've done and what they've been able to do. I mean, if certainly, you know, we can do historical revisionism, but without the fact that <laughs> Shriver, if she was not a Kennedy who happened to have three brothers in the most powerful positions in the United States government and that they had a sister with Down syndrome, the entire infrastructure of supports in terms of physical activity and, and exercise and sport for disabled persons in the US would look radically different. I mean, that advocacy, even though it was very narrow and it, it definitely came through a cure narrative, much, much of which still exists in the Special Olympics organization, it still provided an opportunity that said, activity doesn't have to be this way, right? It doesn't have to be the way that abled persons have said sport needs to be for the last 50 years. It doesn't have to go in and, and everybody has to be this elite athlete in every single sport. Because chances are, I mean, the vast majority of us will never make money from sport. It's, I mean, period. Like, 100% full stop. I played for 13 years. I technically made $5,000. And that was because I got there a free go. wheelchair. <laughs> exactly. I think it, it, it's also important to recognize that Special Olympics came about during a time in which, at least within the US, we had a radical shift toward the cure narrative and toward this idea of corrective and prescriptive exercise because it was so tied up into the hyper-nationalistic stuff that was going on during that time and being anti-communist because apparently exercise is anti-communist because communists don't exercise apparently. And making sure we had the strongest children, which is why we have the presidential fitness test and making sure we have all these other elements that people through sport could be the most productive capitalistic citizens we could be. And yes, sport buys into that narrative, I think, a lot in many ways. And you, you build capital through what you can produce in sport. But I think sport also offers an alternative, the opposite of that. Like, if we think of sport in its broadest terms, it's something that I think is distinctly human. Like, it is in all the records that we look at across humanity, sport has existed in some capacity <laughs> throughout that time. No matter what culture we look at, no matter 
what part of the world we look at, there's always some element of sport. And while yes, in our very Western view of sport, that certainly looks like professional sport now, and it's very uh, competitive and all those things. But I think sport also has this element of, of radicalness where just moving our body is probably one of the most freeing things we can do. Just to go out and, like I said, dance earlier or, or, jog, or find a way that works for you to move. Yeah, yeah go for ahead. Me, I, think, I think it's just the recurring theme of this podcast. Like, I wish there was more opportunities for disabled people across the spectrum of disabilities to understand what movement means to them. And I think we're starting to see that more when I talk about special though and have it figured out. I mean, the athletes have it figured out. I'm, I'm not sure the system has it figured out, but I think the athletes have it figured out of like, yeah, there are, there are competitions that I go to and those are fun and I am an athlete and I am competing and those medals mean something. When I come back to my community, I'm also doing it for this community building and being around other people who have so often been been siloed. Um, all the physical dis- people with physical disabilities haven't been siloed, but if we think, especially the academic super crips of us, think that we've been just as siloed as intellectually and developmentally disabled people in the history of North America, no, we haven't. Shut up. Sorry. Um, Show me an athlete that has had the media acclaim that somebody like Rick Hansen has with an intellectual and developmental disability. So reason mics get handed to certain people. Um, yeah, I, I want people like in an ideal world to be able to build their understanding of movement and that movement doesn't always have to be tied to physical progress. I think that's the part of the problem with the wider exercise industry is that it's like gains and pumps and whatever. And if you have a disability, especially one that um, is going to rob you of function, that's a hell of a message to internalize, that every gym session has to improve, you know, has to create improvement. And we get nailed with that narrative from from physios and OTs who, who don't have a sense of this. That's why I wish there were more disabled PTs and OTs, but that's uh, a diatribe for another podcast. Um, like, it doesn't have to be about gaining. It can be about maintaining. It can even just be about, hey, I'm doing something for myself. I think I've spoken on a previous podcast, but I have a similar relationship with um, with things like Epsom salts, uh, things that have negligible or zero value. Uh, technically, but make me feel like I'm doing something and how that helps my mental health. This is not John suddenly sliding towards pseudoscience. I'm a health reporter. But there are certain things that I have done in my life, including like agreeing to go to a Reiki session, where, which by the way, I'm a terrible Reiki patient participant because you're supposed to be quiet. Right? I don't, I can't see you being quiet. No, ever. no, 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 no. It's sort of like... I'm the person where the massage therapist says, I, I need you to be quiet so I can think about what I'm doing. Um, like, exactly. Like, I think we need to bring a broader idea of what activity can look like. And that, like, the goal isn't, like, the history of disability rehabilitation is about walking again. <laughs> that's That's not my version of recreation. It used to be, probably. 
Um, and there are parts of it that slip into my language, like me saying I use a wheelchair because I want to be able to walk at 50. Yeah, it's it's hard to... Ableism can impact all of us, right? I mean, that's sort of its insidious nature that disabled folks can experience as well as perpetuate ableism. And I think with the... With the fitness industry or exercise industry or the field of kinesiology, however referring to it, whether it's the business commerce side or the academic scholarly side, we have to recognize that all of those roots do come from a corrective model, right? That, that the base understanding for kinesiology is people asking, how do people move? And how can we get them to move better? And from there, it's, it's of course taken on its many different forms, whether it be sport performance or rehabilitation or, or what have you. But it's turned, it has a way of being turned into yet another therapy, yet another thing that is meant to fix you, right? And I, that does sport in just such a disservice because <laughs> I think you can do sport for joy, for no other reason than you just want to do it. Just like you said with Epsom salts or Reiki or whatever. It's like, yeah, we are taught in through very, <laughs> very overt ways, but we're also subconsciously taught that everything we do do has some kind of return on investment, that we have to have some kind of capital gain, whether that's financially or physically or whatever, from this experience. And that just tires me out so much. Like, I just want to do something because it makes me happy. And that's it. Like, yeah, maybe you know, when I go to climb, which is why I like climbing. Climbing, I've, I've found in my now adult life, having done competitive sport, and I still play pickup games here and there, and I like mountain biking, but... Whenever we're in the same space, we'll definitely do a one-on-one -on -one in wheelchair basketball for the podcast. Absolutely. We'll videotape it for sure, and you'll smoke me. Because <laughs> I'm bad... Well, I haven't been in a basketball chair in five years, so I think we may be even... Hey, I'm bad... I'm bad as an able-bodied basketball player, so in a wheelchair... <laughs> my skills are even worse so but like this idea that i like the things that we do in our life can be for joy and nothing else and when there is this evidence that shows physical activity is beneficial it's great and i know we need it and as a scholar i recognize why we need it it's important for policy it's important for programs but too often the circles I run in, even though we're talking about physical activity, even though we're talking about something that inherently for many people has an intrinsic level of motivation that, that many people are just driven to do an activity for the activity's sake, that too often in the spaces I run in, it's like, okay, yeah, physical activity can improve whatever, mental health, academics, blah, 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 executive function. Nobody just sits back and goes, are they having fun doing it? Does it, does it improve 
how they feel about themselves. Well, and I think a lot of that research, correct me if I'm wrong, again, your circle, not mine, it ignores like the vast amount of barriers to entry. I mean, the small potatoes, but I mentioned the like the the hand cycle, but even you know, there was a researcher local to me, Claire Carter, who who researches um LGBTQ identity uh building slash community building within um sports spaces. And I think we super ignore that like you you said and ex- you're exactly right obviously the we have this idea of a return on investment and i think because disabled people are radically unemployed or underemployed because our assured income programs are more and more being tied to work there's when you have five bucks say and you've got to choose between food and a pass to a sporting event or a recreational thing you have to pick the food like just to pick one right our housing or or recreation like these things end up being last in everybody's itinerary really disabled or non-disabled unless they have some sort of higher order wants to make that part of their life um you know, a CrossFitter is probably going to put that fourth on their, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, whereas I might put it 15. Yeah. Or if, I mean, even think I, my partner has ADHD and for her doing physical activity in the morning is ultimately something that helps her with concentration later in the day. So it's something she does have to prioritize, you know, unless she wants to just be cracked out on meds all day, et cetera, et cetera. And it, For me, it comes back to two things. The first is that for the, well, I shouldn't even say for the majority, for all of time, those leading the investigations in these particular areas are not, are not identifying themselves in a way that they would align with a disability rights or disability justice movement. And in fact, most, and this is where I can say most, in fact, most people probably ignore any of that evidence to begin with. And so you get to a point where you have someone who is non-disabled, who is working with a community they may have very scant connections to. It's more or less they're working with just an anthropomorphized population of people that are a little separated from just humanity. But then you're saying, well, yeah, this is just, it's just obvious. Do this and you'll be fine or do this and you'll be fine. And that, again, that comes back to that cure idea that if that that disability is just something we can switch with some type of therapy, whatever it might be in in kinesiologist size, because most of us have had general success in, in fitness and physical activity, we see that value. So we're sort of inadvertently or inherently biased in that way. The other piece that you are what you repeatedly do right yeah the other piece that comes back to me is 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 that definition of health and i think it's important to just spend a minute chatting about that for this episode and because health is (laughs) is a term that just gets tossed around everywhere and i think it's lost general meaning or when people use it, they're, they're using it in a very specific sense, right? We talk about health factors, 
in well-being. And there are many health factors, right? Smoking or not, or drinking or not, or exercise or not, or certain amounts of uh, fatty foods or not. These are all sort of things that we can tie to a objectified measure that, that we can put onto a scale to say, you are in this percentile of health, or you fall into this faction of health. And of course, weight being one of those elements um, that falls into that area. But we often don't look at health as, as more of a holistic sense of well-being, right? There's sort of these general factors that, oh, your cholesterol's right, your this, that, your sugars are fine, your weights are so as long as those things are fine, well, your health must be fine too. And it's like, well, maybe. And, and so I know I've seen a lot of people talking more about this idea of well-being, particularly when we're trying to advocate for physical activity or exercise accessibility that instead of tying it so exclusively to this very medicalized construct of health, that we talk more about someone's well-being. Because Again, you could have all the risk factors or none of the risk factors for healthy living, yet you could be supported and be able to engage in activities that bring you joy, that you make you feel better. And that ultimately goes back into your, collect into your well-being, how you feel everything is going. And ultimately, that's more important, but that's not how we've set everything up. Right, we've set it up to be very much, how can we measure it? Like you said, how can we get these gains? If I'm going to the gym and I'm not seeing improvement, I'm going to stop going. Especially if just to go to the gym, I already have to overcome countless barriers, whether it be cost or transportation or even physical stairs. Yeah, being multiple and marginalized in whatever ways. Yeah, exactly. If depend Or if... I live in an urban setting and the closest recreation center that is of worth, right, that's not just completely run down, is two, three, four, five miles away. And there's no bus transit. There's no this, that, or other thing. And, and so, we, we completely ignore those aspects. And there was something else I was coming back around to that, that I've lost, but... Yeah, I've lost that track. That's so. okay. Before we transition to our Crip of the Week, I will... I will say, because I'm cognizant of the fact that perhaps I sometimes I come across a bit of a parasport evangelist. I have witnessed some absolutely horrific fat phobia in, I mean, every phobia, really. But there are some instances of, of fat phobia that, that exists. Certainly there's, there's uh, conversations around, around fat phobia, even in the DME space around like, heard many a joke about like oh i i can't get fat i i i wouldn't fit my wheelchair anymore which maybe i mean for what i mean in one way is is you know wheelchairs are expensive um but in another way when it's made as an offhand comment from a skinny person you go mm, okay do we do we really need to perpetuate this idea of size and health um yeah and we do it poorly right we we, we do we, it poorly we poorly it's a really great example of where. Sorry, go ahead. We're get we're a little zoom is yeah, decided to introduce a delay to follow up that we conflate those ideas of of health and fatness. 
Right? And, and we assume that those who have more fat are less healthy inherently, despite all the evidence pointing to the contrary. And despite focusing on the quote-unquote obesity epidemic for the better part of the last 20 or 30 years, nothing has improved. <laughs> In fact, things have probably gotten worse. And so, what amount of focusing on curing obesity is really beneficial or should we look more at, hey, how can we reduce the structures in society that limit someone and their ability to pursue whatever health factors, whatever things they want to pursue for a well-being that is what they want to achieve in life. And instead of just always defaulting to, you're right, the most likely skinny, probably athletically fit trainer, therapist, teacher, etc. Right. And yeah, and I don't know if we've solved anything in this discussion, John, but hopefully it helps. I don't think so. I think it's just important to talk about it. I think not to pat ourselves too much on the back before we get to our crypts of the week, but there, I, I will admit, I, I don't I don't see this conversation happening a lot in, in disability movement spaces. I've had it happen, like conversations between para-athletes or, as again, I put retired and retired athletes. So, you know, those reflections of like, remember that thing that we used, that story that we used to tell and think was funny. And now it's like, oh, look at all the phobias that were being introduced into that training environment. When we come back, we will hear John's interview with Lizzie Cox. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This is Disability Movement, etc. And I'm here with Lizzie Cox. Hi, Lizzie. Hi. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. So we got connected via Tiffany Yu, who does a lot of disability activism, entrepreneurial stuff. But can you tell me a little bit about your work? I have to say, I love the title on your on your website that says chronic and iconic. Thank um, you. That, somewhere, some copywriter is mad that that's not on their website, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, I've seen it used a few other places. I thought of it, but also I had seen it used other places like at the same time. So it's not I can't take full credit for it, but. It is one that I thought of in my own brain and then saw other places. But beside the point, um, I am a influencer, content creator, disabled. I'm legally blind and I have quite a few chronic illnesses. Um, and I'm mentally somewhere, usually, sometimes not. <laughs> um, but I am, I do a lot of work with Plus size fashion and bringing fat liberation stuff into the disability community and bringing disability awareness into the fat liberation spaces because the two are off very often at odds. They're both, they're getting a lot more intersectional. Like people are realizing how intersectional disability and fat liberation are. But for a long time, there was nothing like people, disabled people were very sizes and in general like and um words uh fat liberationists were very they didn't really think about disabled people the world at large often does not right 
What got you into the the content creation, that mix of, of activism, content creation within those two spaces? Yeah, so I have been blogging on and off since I was 10, maybe. I've had probably like 15 different blogs that went nowhere. And it was content creation has always been something I've done. I mean, I think everyone creates content if they post on Instagram technically you're a content creator some of us just get paid to do it sometimes um but i have always loved creating and consuming content Um, as a kid who was raised by the internet kind of you know i'm in that generation very interesting to me to just be creating content and um it's always something i wanted to do like in the back of my head but i never really thought i would do it i thought i would have like a regular job like a Abled person, and then I became disabled or found out I was disabled. And turns out it's really hard to have a job like an abled person does when you are both legally blind with like a big blind spot in the middle of your vision, and you have chronic fatigue syndrome slash myalgic encephalomyelitis, and you have arthritis, and you have fibromyalgia, and you have some gut issues that are yet to be figured out. Turns out it's really hard to juggle all of that and a job, like a full-time job. So I ended up, um, I was posting on Instagram for years, just like for fun. And then I was like, wait, I like following influencers. I wonder if I could be an influencer. And then I kind of just started posting more intentionally. And the more intentionally I posted, the more people got interested. And the more people got interested, the more I realized that I could use my voice that I have on social media to help other people. And like a lot of what keeps me going in the social media spaces, like it can be so easy to get wrapped up in like comparison and numbers and stuff. And I always try and bring it back to like, I started this, I started doing this because I realized that I could be the person for someone else that I didn't see when I was being raised by the internet. And I didn't see a fat and happy person on the internet. I didn't see a fat and disabled person on the internet. And I didn't see a disabled, fat and happy and just like genuine, generally like just positive, but also real. And I just try and keep it very much to like the real me, but also to be able to be that person for that I didn't have. You, you mentioned how uh, disability spaces have historically been sizist, fatphobic. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about like what you think the community or communities need to do to disrupt that? And and uh, you know, don't know my history here, so uh, <laughs> you know, please you know, share whatever you'd like to about, you know, that, that movement towards inclusion within disability space. Yeah. So a lot of disability spaces and they're just not. So, okay. I'm going to put it like this. The world is not designed for disabled people. The world is also not designed for fat people and fat disabled people bear the brunt of a lot of the inaccessibility in the world. And people aren't all like the thing is, is things that were created to be accessible for disabled people are oftentimes also accessible for fat people. They help 
out a lot for both of us, for both sides of the thing. But also it's just like disabled people, like you go, okay, so I was going to buy a power chair because I have severe chronic fatigue. Um, and DMU and- spaces are always fun, he says sarcastically. <laughs> yeah, so I went to buy a power chair and I was having the hardest time finding one that would hold me because there aren't many that have a weight limit high enough to hold me. And I'm on the lower end of the larger fats, if that makes sense. Like those people who weigh twice as much as me and they deserve accessibility too. But I found, I ended up finding one that would fit me and hold me, but it was $3,000 and we had to pay out of pocket and order it online. So it's not even customized fit me. It's just like straight out of the package that we ordered online because the ones insurance would cover didn't hold my weight really. Like, and honestly, we were looking for a power wheelchair that was like foldable and they were almost impossible to find that insurance would cover. So it was going to be that either way, basically. But just the fact that we had to pay more for one that would hold my weight is kind of ick. Right. It's it's that doubling down of the crypt tax. Mm -hmm. It's the crypt tax, the fat tax. There's, I mean, being a fat woman who's disabled, there's a lot of extra tax. You got the pink tax, you got the crypt tax, you got the fat tax. And it's just like, wow. And then, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to go off that and say that one way that um, fat people aren't included in disability spaces that is kind of like right up my alley is adaptable fashion doesn't come in plus size. Like I, I have done a collab with a adaptable, like adaptive underwear brand, and they're the pretty much the only one that sells my size in and it's underwear. Like there's nothing else, and that half of their stock they don't have in my size. So, like while plus sizes in the general world are becoming a bigger thing, it's really hard to find plus size adaptive wear. So, yeah. Do you think that if I could call it mainstream disability advocacy, I hate the <laughs> word mainstream, but it's the one I can think of, like. I use a tongue-in-cheek to make fun <laughs> of our education systems in Canada and the U.S., but do you think the sort of, to use a labor metaphor, like the rank-and-file disability activist that has, you know, a big Twitter following, you know, who are who are known, so to speak, who get given mm-hmm. the mic, are aware of the issues, of the, the inaccessibility or the sizeism within disability activism? Honestly, that's one thing I'm glad you pointed that out, because if you'll notice, there's not very many fat disabled activists that are given the space to be heard as frequently. And honestly, I don't know. I don't know if they know, but if they don't, it's sort of a willful ignorance, I think, to some degree, at least, because in this day and age, we're talking about it. Fat fat disabled people are talking about it. And an acquaintance of mine actually started an entire hashtag. So a little shout out to Sarah, Alex, but it's hashtag fat disabled worthy. And the fact that we had to create a hashtag because we're not seen on the regular hashtags. Like you don't see fat disabled people in the media, even on like creator media. Like you just don't see it. And it sucks because we deserve... To hold, we deserve to be able to hold the mic sometimes too, because for one thing, uh, we're more, we're double marginalized. And there's those of us who, those of like, there are people of color who are fat and disabled, and there are, you know, queer people, I'm bisexual, but other like more visibly queer people who are f- 
fat and disabled. And there's just so many intersectionalities. And the more intersectionalities you have, the less of the limelight in air quotes you get. When I've been talking to my co-host, we're in often these sort of hyperactive spaces. I joke around that, you know, I put the retired and retired athlete, but it's still, you know, thinking back, lots of comments that I would now label as as fat phobic and, and sizes. I preface that to say, are there spaces for you that you, like for me, it was parasport, but you end up gravitating towards or any particular communities that within the sort of disability, you know, the widespread of disability communities where you feel the most comfortable or you feel have sort of figured it out in a way? Yeah, I mean, honestly, communities with other fat disabled folks, because I hate being the token fat disabled person (laughs) to some degree, because I mean, there are, I have been in communities where like, there's not any or many, if any, other fat people. And I'm if there is, I'm oftentimes the largest fatty in the room. And being the largest person in the room can be incredibly hard, um, just with the way that the world has shown me that my body is wrong, in air quotes. Um, and just, it's really hard to be the fattest person in the room in any sort of community. And so I really like communities like Fat Disabled Worthy. Um, That whole hashtag is there's a bunch of us who like follow each other and like hype each other up. It's fun. And um, I mean, I love, you were talking about Tiffany Yu. I love the Diversability Collective. I've made a few good friends on there or people that I chat to pretty often sometimes. And then Discord servers actually have a fair amount of acceptance in them. There's a couple of chronic illness discord servers that I'm a member of and I love them. So I guess that's, it's, I will say the other day I was thinking about how people usually seem to find their own space, their own community. And I was thinking like, man, I have a few friends, but I don't really have any like nuclear groups of friends. I have like one friend that's here and one friend that's over here. And one friend that's way over there, they're spread out friends, but like, I don't have a group or a community really. And it kind of sucks. Um, but I feel like I'd rather at least have a few good connections than necessarily be a part of a big community. Because as an introvert who might have undiagnosed autism, who definitely has anxiety i have ocd like that kind of stuff it makes it hard to be in like a bigger community anyway so it's like whatever i like having my individual friends sorry does that make sense oh absolutely absolutely don't don't worry about that you know i was looking through your website and and we'll link out to your website in the show notes but you have a a wide-ranging portfolio and i'm wondering if you could talk me through and it's okay if you know you need to take a pause because this was a bit of a off-the-top question but if there's a particular project that you worked on that you feel was really like made you feel at home. I wrote an article once about asking people about music that made them feel sort of a crip euphoria is the way I put it. Um, and I'm wondering if there's a particular project on here that you really want to talk about, uh, you know, how it how it made you feel or how it how it felt like it made change. Yeah. So I'm actually going to my website because brain fog moment. It's all good. We we edit these <laughs> and we we can leave that in if you want or not. It doesn't matter. Oh, uh, yeah. Either way. I mean, I'm sorry about my dog, by the way, if you can hear. It's okay. 
So I really loved the Diversability Amplified podcast. It was on a similar topic, disability and anti-fat bias. Slick Chicks was really good. It's the adaptive underwear brand I was talking about. I love working with Libro FM. They are one of my favorites to work with just because they... I mean, I love them. They're really kind. They're really easy to work with. And also, I get audiobook credits. And I love audiobooks. He's not blind. <laughs> but, what, what's your what's your current what's one that you're currently listening to or have listened to recently? So I actually I've not started a new one yet. Uh, it's been a minute since I listened to one. But I saw a book. I bought this book for my mom in on the Kindle. And I'm going to make my parents read it to me. I still live at home, but I'm going to make someone read it to me because I want to read it and they don't have an audiobook. And that's something that sucks is when there's a book that I want to read and there's no audiobook. Uh, it's called, it's just about like um, Appalachian culture, archaeology, like anthropology, because uh, I'm from North Carolina. But um, there's also, there's no audiobook yet topic. There's a book that I've really been wanting to read called Poor Little Sick Girls. And it fits this topic perfectly because it is about, it's written by and for chronically ill plus size people. Like, I don't, I think they, I think the author uses the word fat. I'm not sure on their pronouns. I think it's either they, them, or she, her. But, you know, it's like poor little sick girls. I want to read it so bad, but there's not audiobook yet. And like, or there's an audiobook in England, actually, but not in America. So that's frustrating. Publishing, as somebody who's reported on publishing, as a journalist, I mean, maybe my editors don't want to hear this, but the intricacies of publishing are, they're on par with how confusing some some spaces can be in terms of lack of inclusion. I think, you know, uh, we haven't spoken out of an email before the podcast, but I, I'm fairly certain that we've both had the experience of you go to something that you would expect by all rights, whether it's disability led or something else that something is accessible and you show up and it's like, oh, I should have gone through the phone call tree that I usually do with like remarkably ableist spaces. Whoops. Uh, I didn't expect somebody to be deeply uncomfortable with, and I can't think of an example straight off no, the top but of my I, head, I understand but. what you get the vibe. Yeah. Um, and then one more project I really liked working on was I the blog post that I wrote for the uh, National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Um, that was a lot of fun to write. I love, see, I don't get enough writing out. I love to write. I am a good writer. If I had gone to school, I would have done English with a um, probably folk studies minor. I probably would have gone somewhere like Western Carolina and done that. But I love writing so much and so honor of being able to Write a guest blog post for the Center for Civil and Human Rights was just amazing. Yeah, and so you write in the of... blog post about disability pride. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm curious. Disability pride people... and. It's all good. Uh, yeah, I'm reading the type for the listeners here, and we'll link it in the show notes. Disability pride and advocating for access. And, and I've spoken to a number of folks on and off the podcast about how disability pride intersects with them with you know various identities rather than sort of this prescriptive notion that admittedly putting my hand up as a somebody who can sometimes be conceived of as a super grip or was in a previous life anyway 
uh, we can prescribe like, oh, you have to be proud of your disability. And I'm curious your thoughts on that as somebody who's working within, if we can call them cross-disciplinary advocacy spaces. That sounds way more academic than I mean to be, but... It gives me a better like what, title. <laughs> what what role does disability pride play in the projects that you do now and in your content creation? So disability pride plays a big role in my content creation. Anytime I post like with a, I posted actually a reel on Instagram maybe like two or three days ago about it was had like tips for if you're self conscious of using your mobility aids first. It's like one of the options was one of the tips was just like. Remember that you're hold, you're either holding a large metal stick or you're like in a literal metal chair and you can just run over people or whack them if you need to. I'd Go say I've it. never done that, but I'd be lying. <laughs> yeah. Actually have never done it, but I have threatened to. Usually and it's I accidental will, and then I go, I think in my head, mm, but they kind of deserved it. Yeah, I will. When I get mad at someone, I will just zoom away. That's why I love my chair so much, because it has given me so much freedom to just like storm off. I remember wheelchair basketball. Somebody got mad at me and they uh, they just took my wheel off and threw it down the gym. And so that that won the argument. I lost that particular argument. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I uh, wouldn't prescribe that. Don't do that to another person in public, wheelchair users. But uh, if it's among friends. Um... Yeah, I want to say, aside from the. Uh, aside from the disability pride topic that I talk about on my Instagram, because I'm mostly on Instagram, but a topic that I talk about that is not talked about often enough is disability grief and how it can be an eternal, like cyclical grieving process. Either, I mean, I only know from experience of being born kind of abled and then getting sicker and sicker your whole life. But also, I was born legally blind. We just didn't know it until a couple years ago. <laughs> I wasn't born legally blind. I was born with a generative eye disease. Um, but we, I mean, I went from being somewhat abled to bed bound. Well, actually, I went from going to Disney World and walking 10 miles a day for a week straight to being bed bound for about a month from chronic fatigue syndrome within, let's see, Disney was in 2019. My worst pimp my entire life post social malaise of my entire life was in 2021. So that's kind of how that went. And then I also got diagnosed with my eye disease around that time. So it has been a tough few years and a lot has been thrown at me. It's just been chronic illness after chronic illness after chronic illness and the eye stuff too. <laughs> but something that's not talked about enough is that like, Disability pride and disability grief can exist at the same time. They can coexist and it's, they often do. And it's important to hold space for both of them. Disability joy, disability, you know, anger, all of those can exist all at the same time. Like we are incredible machine type things, but we're capable. I don't know if machines is the right word, but humans in and of themselves are capable of so many facets like i know it sounds really cheesy but like we're so multifaceted like duality of man try like quadrality of man or what i don't know um but yeah it's really important to hold space for both of those and i talk about that a lot because it can be tough like disability can be really um frustrating and scary and 
if you, even if you were born with it, I'm not, I don't have that experience, but I've heard people say that it sucks to just kind of like see abled going around in a world that was designed for them and realizing that'll never be me. And that can also tie, I also, sorry for rambling, but I also experienced that with fatness and being a person in a larger body. And I have never been thin. I've been fat since I was a kid and it just gets, there are points in my life where I've been seeing thins walk around in a world designed for them. And it's like, I'm never going to be that. I'm never going to, the double whammy of being fat and disabled. It's like, I'm never going to be what the world wants me to be. And the hardest part for me sometimes is that I'm never going to be who I thought I was going to be, who I was expected to be and what I was, what my life was supposed to be. You said about, no, it's all good. You said about, like, I was born with, I, I'm like you, I, I uh, collected diagnoses. Uh, insert Pokemon joke here about. Yeah, that's how my chronic illnesses are. Yeah, mine are, are on the mental health side. I have those too. My primary disability, as I sometimes call it, is uh, cerebral palsy. My joke is usually that my uh, my diagnosis, and obviously not asking you to dis- disclose i just it's my joke about my own diagnosis which is that cerebral palsy my diagnosis sounds like more like an italian dish than anything else cerebral palsy spastic diplegia with a hint of ataxia i love the hint like it's just a sprinkling of of lack of balance over top of the whole brain damage thing right but i found that i and this could be revisionist history because i'm 29 so i'm a long way away from this experience but you know, I would argue it wasn't until like sixth grade when I, and admittedly, I moved across the world in sixth grade. So that probably had something to do with it. Um, but yeah, there is sort of that moment I find with a lot of people who I speak to who were born with their disability, um, especially those who were born with their disability. And it was in its, it had already manifested, let's say, versus being born with something that shows up or is identify you know the joke is that my you know my disability is viewable on a brain scan and has been since you know day zero um that it is in that like late elementary school middle school if you live in a big enough place to have a middle school (laughs) i did uh that you that it's really challenging to see your yeah your your peers walk around and to start for them to start realizing like, oh, this difference is permanent. Like, I'm always going to feel some version of different. You mentioned like the balancing, the, the sort of the positivity with that. I find in some, and this might be uh, controversial to say, so feel free to read me, reel me back in. What a way to start a sentence. But and sometimes it can be really challenging to like navigate disabled joy and grief and negativity and conversations about privilege about why I'm able to have that joy right like it it's difficult for me to talk about sometimes and woe is me it's gonna make me sound very capitalistic but sometimes for me right now it shows up most of the time in like business conversations and there's a ton of reasons why I'm privileged to be able to I live in a cheap place I live in the middle of the Canadian prairies I don't live in new york you know i live under a canadian healthcare system uh, and yet it can be really challenging to like talk about optimism without putting like four billion caveats on it and sort of degrading my own experience or 
facing people who, well-meaning as they may be within disability spaces, are are like boil it down to luck or privilege and not like anything else. Like I imagine, you know, well, no, I know as as somebody who who makes his living writing, like content creation is not an easy grind, if we can call it that, without sounding too productivity bro-y. Um and uh, this is me making a presumption from other folks that I've talked to, like figuring out how to do content creation when the technology itself isn't always that accessible. Um, can't be, can't be fun. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you face that, that, uh, that lack of balance sometimes? I mean, it's funny for an ambulatory wheelchair user to be talking about balance, but like that balance between like, Hey, is this a moment where I can be prideful in this? Yeah. So I, Honestly, I have a lot of meltdowns over like, woe is me. Like you were saying, like, sometimes it is just like, woe is me. Like you have to just take a minute and go, fuck. But sorry for cussing. But um, <laughs> I never know when it's okay to or not. But I'm realizing that like in adult spaces, it's almost always okay. I just haven't been an adult very long. I'm only 26. I just now got my insurance taken from me like two weeks ago. <laughs> Thanks, America. But the, so yeah. I mean, does I definitely have meltdowns where I'm like, I don't want to be disabled anymore and I want a break and I just want to take a break from this. Please, like, give me a vacation. But then it's like, oh, nope, it's never going away. And that really sucks sometimes. Like, while disability pride is important, that really sucks sometimes. Yeah, I, I think about times where where it's like it's. For me, the hardest part, and I'm slowly turning this into a therapy session. So sorry, Lizzie, for both of us, but like it's, I used to, this is terrible advice, but when I was in high school, I used to say like, I give myself a day a year where I get to throw a pity party and put up the balloons and feel all my feelings. I don't prescribe that anymore. Uh, I could tell you 17,000 aspects that made me think that that was a good idea, but it yeah, the moments where you see somebody doing something, for me, I have to balance it out with like my, I have to like consciously think about the jealousy that comes with that moment. Like when I see a non-disabled person doing something uh, and I go, well, you know, I popped out with CP. This was never on the cards. Why am I, why am I even having feelings about this? And then having to reel myself in and say, no, you're allowed to feel your feelings. Stop putting them away as a, you know, stop hiding them for societal reasons. Yeah, it's so challenging to think about how we can unpack the ways that we're supposed to feel bad or that we that we want to feel bad about things or time for me it's and I'll pass it to back to you very quickly but it's when it's something where I am making the choice not to do it not because I can't do it but because the lift of the self-advocacy is too much. I'm like, I could go have that great experience, but on balance, it's going to take 17 conversations that I do not have the spoons to have. This sucks. I, as someone with multiple energy limiting chronic illnesses, I really have to weigh the options of like, do I want to go like, okay, example, last year, my friend and I went to a pick your own flower farm. I ended up picking like half the flowers that I was, that I could fit in the little bucket they gave me. And said, just like sat down on the ground because I couldn't handle it anymore. And it's like, well, was this half of an experience worth the next week of being in post-exertion malaise? And uh, spoiler, it wasn't. But the flowers were pretty, at least. And that's where I took that 
that's where I kind of found that balance. Well, at least I have pretty flowers to look at while I lay in bed. Um, but sometimes it's, oh, I was just going to say, sometimes for me, it's especially lately, it's been a lot more of like, wow, I need to weigh the option ahead of time because otherwise I will be miserable and it'll be all my own fault. Like made my bed have to lie in it for a week type of thing. Yeah. And it's like when we make those conscious decisions, right? Like I have, I think it's probably the Paris sport. Paris sport was my upbringing in a lot of ways. I, my wife has heard me say, I'm just going to turn off the pain valve right now, which is my code word for, I am going to choose. I don't know if this is, nobody's ever been able to tell me whether it's actually a symptom of CP, but I've never met somebody with CP who didn't have a ridiculous pain tolerance. So like, whatever. But it, I will consciously say out loud, time to turn off the pain valve, which means I'm going to pay for this for two to three days. Um, one of the biggest challenges for me was that after a back injury unrelated to CP, uh, and this is definitely psychosomatic, so whatever, but like if I get super angry, it knocks me out. Like my symptoms flare and I have all of these things that happen. Like I have to consciously make the decision whether to super crip something or just accept that it's not going to happen. Like, was it smart for me? And I'm not using that, like, I'm leveling that at myself. It's not me trying to be ableist around intellectual stuff. But like, was it smart for me to decide to paint two rooms of my house by myself as like, a, in Parasport terms, like a low class CP, like an ambulatory wheelchair user who's not getting on a ladder? No, that was a very silly decision. Actually, man, I couldn't walk for two weeks. And you just sort of have to sit with like, why did I do that? Yeah, I have definitely been there. It is, yeah, when you said turn off the pain valve, I kind of feel that because I can, I can't do it consciously so well, but I definitely unconsciously, like, apparently I was talking to a doctor about this and she's like, yeah, you know, that's called like dissociation, like derealization and depersonalization. I'm like, oh, so that's why I don't have memories when the pain is really bad and but I can't feel the pain. So that's interesting. I have a whole nother mental disorder, apparently, because I am in pain all the time and also childhood trauma, but mostly because I'm in pain all the time. So yeah, I got depersonalization, derealization disorder on my list not long ago. The list is long. But the thing is, is also... I was going somewhere with that. That's okay. We're on crypt time. I had a thing I was going to say, and it's gone. Um, turning off the pain. Oh, there we go. So I have a... This is something interesting that I've been thinking about lately. Is the difference between pain tolerant and pain threshold. And one of mine is way high... I mean, they're both incredibly high compared to like a normie, but one of them is way higher, way higher than the other when they're both like way higher than a normie. But one of them is higher than the other because I will have like symptoms from additional to the pain from being in so much pain. Like I'll get nauseous and lightheaded from being in pain. And then I'll realize, oh, I'm in pain. I didn't even notice. And that's like, what the hell is wrong with me? Why am I like this? For me, having to go to a doctor and be like, look, my foot hurts. And they go, well, big deal. And I'm like, no, if it hurts, I fucked something up. Like, you don't, you don't get it. <laughs> yeah, my, my first rheumatologist actually told, looked at me in the eyes one time and said, rate your, sorry, she looked at me in the eyes and said, rate your pain like a normal person. I'm like, okay, well, I guess it's an eight then, not a four. 
but that's my daily. Oh, and then it's so funny because my primary care gave, I have a herniated like bulges a lot sometimes and then, you know, sucks back up and then bulges. That's how herniated discs be. And I can't get the shots in my back because I have bipolar disorder and they will make me go psychotic, like actually psychotic, right. um, like go into psychosis. <laughs> but the thing about this, the thing about the back is my, my primary care gives me, you know, narcotic pain medication, but it's rated the thing on the prescription bottle says, take a pain levels four to six. And I'm like, okay, so I take it when I wake up and then every minute during the day, I'll get enough of it for that. I get like 30 pills every three months. I need, I would need a lot more if I were to take it at pain levels four to six. That's just my daily. Yeah, I remember I walked into a doctor's office once and this was mid back injury, which was essentially like overuse. Shock surprise. A workaholic CP overdid it. Shocking. But I remember the doctor, and I knew this doctor, so this wasn't like medical, it's not even malpractice. Like, this wasn't, like, this isn't me saying bad doctor, bad doctor. But he looked at me and said, I explained, like, what was going on. And for some reason, I thought it was a good idea to walk into his office. And he said, how are you walking? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't. It's like with my legs. Like, I couldn't. Yeah, it was just like, once I explained everything and once he like felt my muscles, he's like, most people would be screaming right now. And I'm like, well, slight problem. I may have self-selected for this level of, but it's interesting that you talk about the difference between between pain tolerance and pain threshold. I'll, I'll admit I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. I mean, I played with wheelchair rugby teammates who played with bro- broken feet and you're like, this is not. Like, you're going to go play a contact sport with broken feet. Like, even I have moments where I'm like, that maybe wasn't the, the best, best choice, folks. Oh, you know where I get it from, though? My mom, who, you know, kindly gave me a bunch of chronic illnesses. Very kind of her. No, but she passed those down to me. She was, she fell in maybe like October or November. I think it was October. And her foot hurt for a while after that. And then like in January... She's like, okay, it's been hurting for a while. Maybe I should go see a doctor. She came home with a boot because her foot was broken. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how, uh, like those those things can become, um, uh, like when chronic illnesses or reactions to disability become our own versions of family heirlooms. Bring us a little bit back because I I took us down a, a wonderful rabbit hole, but. Looking at looking at your work, I'm wondering if there's things on the horizon that we can that we can tell uh, listeners about that you're excited about or new areas of content that you're making or like what makes you excited about content creation as a disabled person right now? Uh, Honestly, I have nothing lined up. So if anyone's listening, hit me up. I love to work with people. You need something written? Let me write it. You need someone to talk a lot? Let me talk. If you need someone to post pictures of your products while being like cute and disabled let me know but no i don't really have anything coming up i'm excited because i'm trying to make content again regularly i had kind of not been doing it so well for a while because you know burnout and exhaustion and i moved in october and it was very emotionally hard for me so that's been rough but yeah so i'm just trying to get back in the swing of things hopefully i will back in the swing thing soon and things will pick up from there. I have been doing a lot of interview type things like this. Um, 
I did one with Nico Myring from the Diversibility Diversibility Leadership Collective on Rare Disease Day. I don't know when that guessing it's coming out on the 28th, but I'm not sure. And then I did a podcast with Christian Brosquette on her podcast Social Social Scoop, S-O-U-L-C-I-A-L Scoop. Um, I did an episode with her and it's out already. I did I'm doing a interview with my friend Mads. Her username is is I'm Madster. Um, and she's starting a podcast, so I'm going to be one of her first guests. And then I'm doing a podcast on Tuesday with someone about plus size bridal stuff because I'm planning a wedding. I'm planning my wedding, and so I'm getting thank you. It's in November. We're very excited. We are not prepared, but that's okay. We're getting there. You, you never are. And uh, I was speaking from experience. It's. Uh... It's it's a it's good chaos most of the time. But yeah, so I don't have a lot coming up, but I have it's really like the past two weeks the podcasts and stuff have boomed. And then ho- I hope to continue them, but not maybe at this frequency, maybe just like one or two a month. Not not quite if, at this but pace. Yeah. So I am here right now, I am manifesting more work for me in the future. And I'll get back to you when I get more work coming up. Okay, so before I let you go, and thanks so much for your time and what we delved into today. This is going to sound very like soapboxy. So if you want to rephrase the question, totally cool. But you know, if there's a listener or listeners who are they're hearing about sizeism and fat phobia, and they can see with themselves as activists or allies, what is your message to somebody who may not who wants to be supportive and inclusive but it's like where the hell do i start all right for the first thing that i tell uh people who when they're trying to get into fat liberation especially is fat liberation is not successful until the fattest of fatties are free to be fat so like you know my 600 pound life type shit don't engage with it for one thing but then also they are just as human as you know Eugenia Cooney, who people are fawning over trying to get to go to an eating disorder rehab oh, place. That's, that's the anorexic YouTuber? Or, yeah, sorry. She, I'm, yeah. I'm throwing a label on her without knowing totally certain no, eating her. disorder YouTuber. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, the people in my 600 pound life are just as deserving of compassion and care as Eugenia Cooney is. So, keep that in mind. And just, okay, here's a a really good, easy to do thing when you have a fat friend. If you're wanting to get into fat liberation, when you go out with your fat friend, make sure that there are chairs that and they can sit comfortably in and the arms will not dig into them. Just make sure that the chairs that you're going to be sitting in when you go out with your fat friend, that they can fit in them. That is the most simple, easy ally thing to do. And it makes a difference. It really does. Thank you. And thanks so much for your time, Lizzie. We'll, uh, we'll link to your Instagram at looks by lizzie l-i-s-s-i-e in the show notes and yeah have a great rest of your day thank you so much for having me on here this was a ton of fun all right john uh wonderful interview this week as always let's get into crip of the week for this week who do you got so i am generalizing again uh but this week has been um, Canada Winter Games, which I mentioned on the podcast before. Uh, it's where wheelchair basketball and, and some other 
and parasport uh, events, um, skiing, uh, are, are competed on a uh, junior level, uh, 24 under from um, sort of a provincial, multi-provincial sport games. And um, the reason I'm shouting out the athletes there is it's a real community building opportunity. It's an elite sporting competition, but it's also a, a real coming together of parasport athletes. And I'm lucky to be able to watch people that uh, that I used to play with who are now coaching. People used to coach me who are now coaching. Um, Rob Saters, who was one of my uh, club coaches and uh, uh, teammates as well, uh, roommate on many a road trip, um, is uh, is coaching as is, I believe, uh, one of his sons, um, Joshua Davies, uh, who I have a photo blocking him very violently in a game, but I don't post it to troll him because he beat their team beat us in the game. So like, and, you know, 20 years from now, I'll say we won, but uh, it's still within working memory of most people. Um, uh, but you still have that documented proof. Yeah. And for me, you know, I went to two of these, obviously, uh, they're every four years. So this is the second cycle that I've been out of it. It's super exciting for me to see those names that I played with in my uh, teens and, and early 20s moving into some of these sporting leadership roles. And it's also really just exciting to know that if and when I do eventually drag myself back into the gym, that there is a vibrant community of, of young athletes that can be putting some of these lessons that I hope that Parasport has has not moved on from, but but integrated um, in terms of um, over-abling the training process, particularly in elite sport, parasport, um, and coming back to a cool environment. How about you? Who are your uh, scripts of the week? Yeah, so mine, and I'm going to go general this week as well. I am going to shout out all of the disabled students that are graduating from high school across the U.S., because according to statistics that came out of the Department of Education National Center for Educational Statistics, the high school graduation rate for disabled individuals jumped 70% from the 2019-2020 school year. So that is awesome that, that students are being able to graduate. Do they attribute that to something? It's, uh, they said that the variance is likely to, uh, oh, no, that's, um, so there's, of course, there's variances across states, like, even though overall it was 70%, states like Oklahoma was 88% uh, increase, where Mississippi was 55% increase, and they, they said that the differences were, were likely how individual states sort of classify certain students or classify graduation because um, certain students could do alternative certification, et cetera, et cetera. The U.S. is a whole mess of things that every state likes to do things independently. But the best part of it was that even during this time, uh, particularly when there's such a moral panic about learning loss, et cetera, et cetera, um, students with disabilities seem to be succeeding which is important because they've not been given, especially in the U.S. system, they've not been given really a great chance to succeed in most instances. Um, I would probably, even though this article doesn't, doesn't suggest it, I would probably say that at least some of that 
uh, percent increase could be attributable to the fact that we were giving school in a hybrid or remote type of situation where students could have more flexibility instead of being in school all the time, that they could learn from home, um, which is what a lot of families have been advocating for for decades and is an actual school choice issue and not the school choice issue that certain conservatives like to tout around, which really just further destroy the public education system. But that, again, is a topic for another day. But I just really want to say I'm super proud. I'm super excited to see students succeeding in a situation where they're not often given the best opportunities or the best supports to succeed. And I'm also starting to see a lot more organizations at the university level that are working to support students and giving them an avenue for further uh, academic achievement at a higher level institution, particularly for students that may have intellectual disabilities that have been traditionally excluded are given those opportunities to learn a trade, learn a skill. Uh, and I think that's hopefully a, a increasing positive trend. So congratulations to all those graduates. Keep it up. Uh, excited to see what they do in the years. And it's an exciting time. So kudos to them. Well, that is all we have for this week, John. It's good talking yeah, to you. Thanks for time, Andy. And I look forward to look forward to next time. Yeah. All right, everybody, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. See you soon. Bye. Bye. Disability Movement Etc. is a Blank Owl production. You can find out more about what we're doing, including past episodes, show notes, and transcripts at blankowl.com. The music for this episode was composed by Adrian Doc Blust. If you'd like to support our efforts with Blank Owl, head over to support.blankowl.com. I hope you all join us next time.